Hey everyone, and welcome to the Renaissance Podcast. Our goal at Renaissance is to expose the heart of our city to the truth and love of Jesus. And if you want to be a part of that, then follow us on social media by searching Renaissance Decatur, or you can connect with us at renaissancedecatur.org. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Let's get started. We call the Bible a book, but did you know it's actually 66 different books combined into a single library? It was written by 40 plus authors spanning over 1600 years as they tell us the stories of men and women as they follow God in and through their lives. But each of these individual chapters all point to a greater story, the story of God saving the world through his son, Jesus. Now, in the New Testament, we read four biographical accounts of Jesus' life. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John teach us about the places that Jesus walked, the people he met, and the things that he said. In the coming weeks, I've asked four of my friends to look at all of the things that Jesus said and to focus in on just one. The question that I'm asking them to answer for all of us is this. Of all the things that Jesus said, What is that one thing that inspires you the most? Today, we will hear from Ben Cochran. Ben has been a part of the church since he was a young boy, and he has learned so much about what Jesus wants for his followers. He is a husband, a father, and a coach, and Ben understands the importance of inspiration and leadership. And I have no doubt that we will all be inspired by what he shares with us today. Will you join me in welcoming my friend, Ben Cochran. What's up, Ren? Come on, yes, yes. Come on, make some noise. That was pathetic. I deserve way more than that. Um, Welcome to Renaissance. My name is Ben Cochran, and I'm so pumped to be here this morning. Reason being, they have let the monkey out of his cage. If you are new to Renaissance, maybe this is your first week, if you've seen me up on stage previously, I was locked away in this sound-dampening plastic cage that that drummers call, and uh, so Jeff and his team have bravely decided to ask the monkey to come out of his cage and see what he has to say. And I got a ton to say this morning, so uh, buckle in, it's going to be a fun ride. So as I said, my name's Ben. Uh, I've been married to Brittany, who also sings up here from time to time. And uh, we have two children. We have a five-year-old son named Isaiah, and we have a two-year-old daughter named Caroline, born on New Year's Eve. So she was our party girl. And all the, <laughs> all the men in the room just went, tax break. So throughout my life, um, obviously I've been a parent for five, five years now, a little bit. Um, I've also had an opportunity to do a lot of coaching. I fell in love with basketball at a very young age. I started playing it year round from about the time that I could walk. God bless my parents uh, because it was winter, fall, spring, summer. There was always, whether an open gym or a league of some kind or typical school season that was always active and present. So 
As I got older, um, played basketball in college at the Division III level, and afterwards wanted to stay close to the game, so I did some coaching and coached, you know, little tykes, which is more or less herding cats, and uh, have also coached at the high school level as well. Um, and today my career is financial advising, so I still do coaching, but instead of coaching people how to dribble, pass, shoot, I uh, just get together with people and coach them on how to steward their money better, to be a little more intelligent around how they save and spend. And so the point being is that I found myself in a capacity where I'm developing, I am teaching, I'm coaching, I'm encouraging. And between that, that career, coaching basketball and also being a parent, over the last five years or so, the the Bible has really come to life for me, particularly my relationship with Jesus as no longer a boss or a dictator or a bully, uh, but now I see him as what he's always claimed himself to be, but a, a father and a, a coach. We're going to unpack that a little bit this morning, but I think that you'll find that when we realize that God the Father is not just a title, uh, but it is who he is. What his instruction and his desire for us as his kids, what it really means, what is driving that, and why he chooses to say the things that he says. And um, the simplest way to look at it would be, you know, Isaiah, my son, five years old, one of the first disciplines or instructions, don't touch the hot stove. Don't touch the stove. So naturally, he touches the stove, and uh, like all five-year-old kids do. And what does he learn when he touches the stove? It's hot. It hurts, right? Um, makes blisters. It doesn't go away for a while. And so the next day, Isaiah does not have to get up Meditate on what happened yesterday. Today, I know I'm going to be tempted to touch that hot stove, but I'm not going to do it. I'm going to be self-controlled, self-disciplined as a five-year-old and not touch the stove. No, he doesn't have to do that. He now understands the why behind touching a stove and why we should not do it. He no longer wants to touch the stove, nor, <laughs> lo nor does he ever try to touch the stove. And it's not because he became more self-disciplined overnight as a five-year-old or he had a greater sense of self-control. All he did was he understood the why behind the instruction. Let me give you another example uh, in coaching. So I was coaching, assistant coaching for a uh, varsity high school basketball team, and we were going over screening. Who in here knows what a screen is in the game of basketball? Much less than I thought. Okay. So uh, anybody ever heard it called a, a pick? Okay, pick and roll. Yeah, there you go. Okay. So um, just for the people in the room who have no idea what I'm talking about in the sake of uh, this analogy falling flat on its face, let me explain a screen really quickly. So an offensive team uh, has plays that, that are designed to, to do what? Ultimately to score, right? So everybody on the team has a different role and one of the roles for typically the bigger, more muscular, pretty much everything that I'm not people, uh, is to go and blockade some of the defenders 
AKA get in their way so that their teammate, the offensive player, can run in the opposite direction and find themselves open. When a player's open, if they receive the ball, they're more likely to what? Score. All right, we're tracking. So um, initially when we start to teach about screening, we do a couple drills and we are trying to reenact what's gonna happen in a game and practice what setting a screen looks like. So when we do the drill, we teach them how to set a screen and we say, okay, do it. Um, when they start, screening is not very fun. It's not the most glorious or glamorous part of the game. And so, you know, our big, our big football players that are only out for basketball to stay in shape for football, uh, we ask them to go set one screen after the other, one screen after the other. And it's not very fun. You go, you plant yourself, you cover your precious materials, and you try to stand firm to make it as difficult as possible for the defender to, to get around you. So because it's not very fun, part of basketball, the effort that they inevitably put forth is not excellent or 100%, no, nowhere close. And then we explain the why to them. So why do we set screens? Well, the initial and most obvious reason is, is, is that it can get your teammate open so that he has a, a greater chance to score, which everybody on the team wants. The second reason is really the, the true reason behind screening that really opens their eyes. And that is that when you set a screen and your player, your teammate is now open to receive the ball, you've created a little bit of a frantic moment for the defense because now a threat is posed to their team. They've got somebody unguarded that is gonna score the ball, something the defense does not want. So in that moment, um, the person that's guarding me, my defender says, hey, my teammate is caught up and can't get to this open man, so I'm gonna help him out. I'm gonna cover him for a split second and then get back to my man. If a screen is set properly and most effectively, what ends up happening is they set a screen, my defender goes to help his teammate, the person that I'm trying to um, get in the way of, eventually finds his way around and he's sprinting because he's got steps to make up. He's already behind. So what that looks like is now we've got two defenders that are chasing after the open, my teammate. So who does that now actually leave open? Me. The what? The screener. So if I set a good screen and both defenders chase after that offensive opponent, now I'm the one that's open and now me, the big football player that didn't really care about basketball in the first place is now excited because I get the opportunity to catch the ball and do what everybody wants to do and that's score points. See, screens don't show up in the stat sheet. They uh, don't get talked about on the news or in the newspaper, but points do. And when the screeners get an idea and understand the why behind set the best screen you possibly can because it will allow you to now have an opportunity to score. We run that drill again. What do you think their effort looks like? Now they're all in. Te Coach, teach me how to set the best screen I can. Tell me what I'm doing wrong. I'm standing extra firm, extra strong because I want to score. The only component in both of those stories, the hot stove and the screen, is the why. The why created a change in behavior that they no longer had to put any effort towards 
making that decision. The why allowed them to put forth effort they could not have done otherwise simply just because the motivation is now coming from an internal source, their own heart, not from a mean coach that just wants them to do mundane actions. What I'm describing is what I call the difference between a boss and a coach. So a boss, I would say, tells people what to do. A coach or a father tells people what to do and why to do it. The reason being is that I, I as a father, I as a coach, have a personal investment in what, they, in what they do. I care about them. I care about the team. I want what's best for all of us. I don't encourage them to set better screens because I think it's going to help us lose or help them be a worse player. I give that instruction because it's the best for the team and it's the best for them. So we're going to unpack this a little bit in Scripture. And I'm going to read a couple of stories that talk about one particular topic. The topic is the Sabbath. And I'm not going to get into the weeds on the whole doctrine and, and studies and everything on the Sabbath. What I really just need you to know is that it was the fourth commandment that God gave of the ten. And the commandment was simply just to take a day off. Rest. Don't work. And this, this day, and by not working and resting, was a way and an act of worship to God. So let me jump into Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 28, and then we're going to read the beginning of chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. There's Bibles in front of, the, in front of you, underneath the seats, the page if you wanted to turn in there, is page 838. You can use your Bible app or you can follow along on the screen as well. But let me read and then I'll pray and we'll jump in. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Chapter 3 starts another story where he says, Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Before I pray, the, the, that one thing, 
the one thing that Jesus says that inspires me the most is more of a concept than it is a verse or a specific passage. The concept and the thing that's most important to me, that, that one thing I, I wish I could go back and, and tell my early Christian self is the why behind God's instruction. That the why that God gives is what communicates to us that he's a father that loves us, that he's a coach that's on our team. Will you pray with me? Jesus, I just thank you for the opportunity this morning. I thank you for the, the message that you have, not me, that you have to share with the people this morning. God, that, that each and every day you desire for us to know that you are our father, that you are our coach, you are on our team, and what you have for us in every way that you guide and instruct us is for our benefit, it's for our good. Jesus, I ask that uh, I would communicate clearly and that you would speak through me, your words, not mine. In Jesus' name, amen. So both of these stories are uh, examples of Jesus getting in, in trouble on the Sabbath, which wasn't entirely uncommon. And in the Pharisees' mind, which the Pharisees, if you don't know, were, were they were not bad people. They were actually just super religious people. They were um, known as people that would go to the ends of the earth to do whatever it took to better worship God. They wanted to be as close to God as possible. And so um, in these two stories, they're so determined to keep the commandment, the rule, the instruction, that they're willing to let a group of people starve. They're willing to let a guy with a dis disabled hand stay disabled for the sake of this rule. Again, with good intentions, because remember, this was an act of worship. It was known to be an act of worship to God. So they, they wanted to do everything that God tells them to do and do it to the fullest. But the key here in this both of these stories, is that they have misinterpreted the why behind the Sabbath. Much like I believe, and we'll tell you more about later, that I have misinterpreted so many whys related to my relationship with Jesus. Their why on the Sabbath has become works-based. So their why we keep the Sabbath, why we are going to let people starve, why we're going to let the disabled man keep half an arm is because God intended this to be an act of worship. We want to worship God, what he says goes, and we are earning his approval and appreciation via keeping his commandments beyond even common sense, <laughs> right? I don't think the Pharisees, in fact, I would say that I know that the Pharisees are not upset that people that were about to starve suddenly got food. I don't think that they're upset that someone who was stood to live the rest of his life with a disability suddenly has a restored hand. I don't think that they're upset with that. What they're frustrated with is that every Sunday, whatever their Sunday was, but every week they positioned themselves to teach this gospel or these rules in a way that Jesus now walks in and totally flips upside down, 
right? So I'm imagining here if I'm a, a, a temple, temple visitor on that day and I just heard the sermon and then Jesus comes in and says the exact opposite thing, I'm like, who's throwing the first swing? Uh, because what you just said is the complete opposite of what he just said and he just made a dude's arm grow. So what's going down here? I think the Pharisees have a little bit of arrogance to them, which shame on Pharisees, right? But I'm gonna expose how we, a lot of us in this room, certainly the one on the stage today, found themselves in the exact same position. They found themselves in a place where they believe to have, they figured it out. I don't need to learn anything more. I've got it figured out. I'm now the teacher, not the student. And Jesus is coming in and saying, you've got a lot to learn, kiddo. The thing we have to understand about the Sabbath is the true why behind it is that at the end of chapter two, it says that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. What God is saying is that, th listen, this was a gift. Who in here would like a day off, like a true day off, permission for a day off? Nobody? Workaholics, unbelievable. <laughs> Who wouldn't love permission to take a much needed day off and rest? This was a gift and it was for us. And the Pharisees have now taken the Sabbath and they've made it their own as a gift that they're somehow giving to God. That they've wanted to, uh, they've perverted it to this idea of like, I think about like Christmas morning and Isaiah and Caroline have presents and they just take the presents and they're like, here dad, here's a Black Panther action figure. He's like, I created Black Panther. Like I don't need, this is for you. This, this gift is for you, not the other way around. It's important to know too that that God did this first, this Sabbath idea. So in Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, great. And he did it in six days and on the seventh he took a day of rest. So what's interesting to me about this is the almighty creator, the all-knowing, someone with Laramie's creativity times a billion, has the ability to create anything he wants to whatever capacity he wants, and it's always perfect, right? Imagine if you were that artist. It'd almost be frustrating. Like, can I just create something crappy? Like, everything's amazing. But even he chose, after six days, to stop. And he knew something I know that I need to know how to do as, a, as an athlete, as a perfectionist. He knew when to stop and say, it is good. And then he chose to take a day of rest that he saw as good. The father then turns around and offers a gift to us, his kids, says, take a day off. I did it already. It's a good thing. It's not something that he ever intended to be so criteria-based that it would get in the way of starving people eating food or unhealed people becoming healed. They've misinterpreted the why, much like I think I know that myself and 
many of us here in the room may feel like they are. So I want to talk about um, this, this idea of, of where the Pharisees are. Again, not, they're not being bad people. They have great intentions. What they've arrived at is a church word that we would call self-righteousness, which self-righteousness, the definition being convinced of their own righteousness based on the actions of others. So how do I know that I'm righteous? I'm way better than my neighbor, Frank. Like I'm, I'm pretty, uh, I'm pretty bad, but not nearly as bad as Frank. I hope there's no Franks in here today. <laughs> and that comparison is what tells them that I'm righteous. How many times, if you've been in, to Renaissance in any length of time, have we heard him say, we need to stop comparing ourselves to our neighbor and start comparing ourselves to Jesus, the one who's never sinned. And then we're all in a place where we understand we are not as good. We're all broken. We all need a savior. So this idea of self-righteousness gets pretty disgusting because with, with God, there is never a point where you arrive, where you have learned it all, and where you can now position yourself to simply just educate. You don't need any more growth, any more revelation. And just like in the stories of the Sabbath, it becomes this thing that's no longer appealing, right? It's a chore. It's relationship with Jesus looks like that. Like, I don't want to be a part of that. Relationship with Jesus means these hungry people over here don't get fed. Relationship with Jesus on a certain day means that this guy doesn't get his life back via a, a healthy limb. That's not something I want to be a part of. I'm going to unpack how misinterpreted whys affect, affected my life. So a few examples. Um, one would be drinking, alcohol. So I found myself self-righteous, uh, being raised in a Christian home with great Christian parents and born going to all the church camps and youth groups and all that stuff. I found my, my place as a self-righteous, uh, even though I didn't realize it. And so for the rule of, uh, you know, don't get drunk and to abide by the laws of the land, which is like my life verse, it's gross. Uh, I did not have a sip of alcohol until 12.01 a.m. on my 21st birthday. Which I did for no reason in the Bible. I did it because... It was a rule, and I was strong enough to follow it. Anybody that drank ahead of time was weak. It's easy to drink alcohol before 21. Only the strong, the disciplined, right? Some of you already are like, 1201, here's the worst part. Later that night, I remembered I was born at 3 a.m., so I wasn't technically 21 years old until 3 a.m. I, I ruined it all. But I didn't, I didn't drink until that point for that, for that why. For, for puff my chest, I'm stronger than you are to have waited this long. And I didn't associate with anybody that did otherwise. Relationship with Jesus looks like that. 
And so I found myself like a Pharisee. I believe that I turned people away from Jesus. While my intentions were good, my why behind my actions was way false. My wife, Brittany, and I, I told you we've been married eight years. This is, I'm 30 years old, and this is the first year that I can officially say I've known her longer than I have not. So we met early, early on. She was an eighth grader. I was a freshman in high school and uh, dated on and off for several years. But there was a point where we got into an argument, an argument. She was in the first service. It was very hard to tell these stories. In front of her, she's like, finally, it comes to the light. Uh, But we got into an argument, and the argument was around who sins more. I can give you one guess on who started the argument. And I was like, you know, Brittany, I don't, I don't, sin a whole lot anymore. Again, this is gross. And she goes, well, you, you speed in your car. You break a rule. You, uh, a law of the land, you break, you break that rule. And I was like, you know what? You're right. Thank you for exposing that fault in my life. I'm no longer going to speed. I will drive the speed limit. Then what are you going to be able to say? And now that you've exposed my one fault, are you ready for yours? (laughs) So that started an entirely different argument that got pretty heated and I left and sped all the way home. Um, In in basketball, there's, um, you shoot free throws and most players have a free throw routine, uh, right? A sort of muscle memory act that no matter the pressure of the moment, once you start the routine, you've done it hundreds of thousands of times, your brain can sort of just shut off and, and uh, you can perform the action, not let the pressure get to you. It's a true story. Uh, my free throw routine, the referee would bounce me the ball. I'd take the ball and I'd go bounce, 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 and then I'd shoot. Well, under my breath, just loud enough so that maybe a player or two on the side of me might hear, I verbalized, I can do all things through Christ and shot the ball. (laughs) Why? No clue. My looking back, that was me being a self-righteous Pharisee, adding criteria to what it looks like to live like Jesus. And maybe somebody I'll never see again might get saved because I just did a free throw routine that had scripture on it, right? (laughs) The best part is I'd miss the free throw and be like, is God even real? (laughs) But who wants to hang out with that guy, right? The self-righteous, criteria-based, I'm better than you are person. It's a small... It's a large miracle my wife is still around. Let's be honest. And the point point in me expressing those actions in my life is because I had misinterpreted whys. I look around and I know that there are people from uh, my high school and, and other circles of friends, maybe in college, that either don't associate or probably don't talk to me anymore because of the oppression from a self-righteous perspective that I'd placed on them. Again, with good intentions, 
You know, good intentions to be the best Christian that I can be, but I was doing so with an incorrect why and motivation behind my actions. And it was unappealing to the people around me. And that's my big issue, is why is Christianity, why is following Jesus, having a relationship with him, why is it, generally speaking, unappealing to, to our communities? Like, why aren't people sprinting, begging, find themselves desperate for a relationship with Jesus if it is everything that we say that it is on a Sunday or through a video? Like, why do we have to have these cool lights? Why do we have to have incredible drummers? <laughs> we, we don't have to, shouldn't have to feel like we're marketing a relationship with Jesus, like we're selling a relationship with Jesus. And if we were honest with ourselves in this room, we feel like that more than we don't. To put something in context, imagine that I had a cure for cancer and it was proven there's no ulterior, ulterior theories. We know that we know that we know this cures cancer without a doubt, no second guessing. And it's a bottle. I could wrap that bottle in dog poo and people would be all over me for it. They'd be desperate. They'd be begging. They'd be sprinting towards it. Ben's got a cure for cancer. They don't care that it's wrapped in dog poo. They know what it cures. They're desperate for it. I don't even have to give a sales pitch. It'd be the easiest sales gig ever. But yet with the gospel, with a relationship with Jesus, we don't see the same thing happening. And we have to try a lot harder to make it appealing. And I'm here to tell you that biased personal Ben Cochran's opinion is that there are many of us, myself included, living day in, day out as a Christian, as a Jesus follower, and our reasons for why when we're asked are, are Pharisee answers. They're because the Bible said so or because I'm a Christian. Which is really, if you think about it, a way of saying, I don't know. I don't know. But I was raised in the church. My dad's, mom and dad's Christian. I don't know. It's a good thing. I don't think that's going to get you very far. It doesn't hold a lot of water. And I don't think the impact on the people around us is going to be very big when those are our wise. That's not appealing. When we know that a relationship with Jesus is appealing, it's amazing, amen? It's the best thing you can possibly do. These rules and regulations that people whine and moan about, they really should be called tips and tricks. They're a fast track to a life of abundance, a life of happiness that avoids so much destruction that we choose to walk through because we did otherwise than follow the Father's instructions the coach's instructions. You know a coach never puts a play in that's gonna help the team lose. Why do we think when Jesus gives us instruction or he gives us um, encouragement in certain parts of our lives that we think otherwise? That it's gonna be less fun, that life's gonna be less full. I'm gonna choose to do these but not these because I'm not so on board with where my life will look like by doing, I'm, I, don't know, I don't know yet. Eventually, you'll touch the stove and you'll realize why. I'll give you a story about my son, Isaiah. He was, um, he was playing with a, a knife when he was like three years old. 
It was a butter knife, but it was a knife. And I said, Isaiah, don't play with knives and took the knife away. At that moment right there is the difference where the line is between a boss and a coach. I could have taken the knife away, said no, no, and I could have walked away. What I did instead is I took the knife away. I said, Isaiah, don't play with knives. This will kill you. I didn't say that. He was only three years old. <laughs> I said, I said, this will hurt you. This will make you bleed. This could hurt somebody else. And he was old enough to understand conversation. And so he, he understood. His eyes got wide. I didn't know, Dad. So the next day, again, do you think he had to discipline himself not to play with knives? Do you think he had to say, I'm going to be tempted, self-control, who saw, no knives today? No, he never desired to play with knives ever again. What he realized was, oh, dad doesn't want me to not have fun. Dad's not a bully. He's not mean. Dad's looking out. I was going to play with that knife all afternoon. Dad was looking out for me. I had no idea that it was going to do that kind of damage or could do that kind of damage. Thank God that dad was looking out. Let me give you a few examples of what that looked like in my life, some of the knives in my life. Talked about drinking earlier, so don't get drunk, right? It's a rule. Don't get drunk. Self-righteous Ben didn't do it. Why? Because the Bible said so, right? Okay. The why behind it that I then realized is getting drunk makes you dizzy, makes you throw up. It subdues some stress temporarily, only to allow that stress to be worse when you get sober. Causes things like liver disease. How many people do we know or have heard about getting killed in a car accident because of drunk drivers? Oh, that's why. That's why. Don't be um, sexually immoral. God, I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, about 10, 11 years old, us boys start feeling some things uh, about some some actions that apparently you don't want us to do for another decade. <laughs> you cruel and heartless jerk. Then I saw the tears in my fiance's eyes when I told her I'd looked at pornography. I saw even more tears when she questioned if she could stay married to me because it happened again. Oh, that's why. See, dad was looking out. Do you, think, do you think God knew those were knives? Do you think God knew that Ben was playing with knives? Do you think God said, don't play with knives and walked away? Or do you think he said, don't play with knives? This will destroy you, destroy your marriage, destroy other people. When I figured out the why, God, in my mind, changed from being a, a dictator, a boss, giving out rules, and he turned into my dad, my heavenly father that's looking out, my heavenly father who's a coach who is saying, do this, do that. It's going to help you win. It's going to make the game more fun. I'm on your team. 
when we can live our lives, when we can live our lives that way, we don't have to change anything about what we're doing, our actions. But when we are doing what we do because of a different why, the true why, where before the self-righteous answer was because the Bible said so or because I'm a Christian, now it's because my heavenly father is looking out for me and I choose not to do that stuff because I know the damage and the destruction. I'm no better than you by any means, but I've, I've kind of got the secrets or the answers to the test. My heavenly father told me about all the knives ahead of time so that I could avoid some of this destruction. The band's gonna come back up and I'm gonna close with this thought. And the thought is, how many of us have never asked ourselves why we do what we do? For example, we're gonna go into worship here uh, for the next 15 or 20 minutes and some people in the room are gonna have their hands up during the song. You know, I did this for like 10 years and didn't have a darn clue why. <laughs> i tell you why, I'm super holy people do it. Yeah, there's like Christians and then there's Christians that put their hands up during worship. Yeah, it's you know, on a completely different level. If you don't have a why behind this, just as th this is just one example, but if you don't have a why and you take the music away, you take the fact that we're in a church away and you just look at people standing in a room and some of them are like this, <laughs> that's ridiculous. And guess what? It doesn't mean anything to God. It means nothing. But now what it means to me, as I continue to ask God, just like my son asks, why? Why can't I run across the street? Why can't I play with knives? And I ask God, why can't I do this? Or why do you ask me to do this? I begin to learn the whys and the Father's love just flows. Because now I know that this when you surround an enemy's camp and they've got nowhere else to go, what do they do? They surrender, hands up, right? I know when my children are having a tough day, they want daddy. What do they do? Daddy. Our youth pastor, Jack Hine, said something really cool to me a couple days ago when I was preparing this. He goes, did you know that people born blind that have never seen someone raise their hands he goes, do you know when they run a race and cross the finish line, they do this? How do they know? This is, for some reason, a natural instinct of victory, to display victory. I've done it. I finished the race. There are so many, so many whys that we have misinterpreted and the consequence of that is A, a way, way less abundant life for ourselves, but B, is an unappealing gospel that we're preaching to any and everybody around us. So I don't know if you've never heard the why, you're in this room and you don't, maybe have never heard of Jesus, you don't know why or what or who behind it. That's where I would start. Why? And maybe you've heard the why, but you haven't actually heard the why. A chapter later in chapter four 
I don't have this on the screen for you, um, but Jesus starts to tell parables, which parables are just a um, just a story with a like a spiritual um, moral to it, kind of like an analogy. And he says, "He who has ears, let him hear." So I think there's people in this room. I being one of them who heard, but didn't truly hear. So maybe today, if I can ask and hope for anything that God would do in you guys today is that you walk out, same person doing the same things, but for the first time, maybe you're doing it for a different reason. And that reason is what Jesus really looks like. Like I said, I'm gonna pray and we're, uh, we're gonna go back into worship. You can take this time to reflect, ask God why. Why am I doing what I'm doing? I resonate with Ben, I'm born and raised in the church, doing all kinds of things, communion, baptism, tithing. Do I know why I do them? That's an okay question, by the way. Dad likes to educate his sons and daughters. Dad likes when his kids come to him for advice. If you don't know what you're doing, what's the point? We good? Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Let me pray and we will jump into worship. Jesus, thank you for such an amazing opportunity to be someone that you created and had walked through so many different things in life. Um, initially as someone that looked for works-based approval and not the fatherly approval that requires no works. God, I ask that your fatherly love, who you really are, the fact that you're really on our team, you really love us like a father loves his kids, just pours over this room this morning. I pray for the parents in this room as they go home and they talk to their kids, they discipline them, they coach them, and they get frustrated saying, for the hundredth day in a row, Isaiah, you cannot have candy first thing in the morning. I pray we walk away from that conversation and understand that God is saying, for the hundredth day in a row, would you listen to me? I love you. I'm your dad. What I have for you Every bit of it, every word is for your good. We love you, Lord. We love you, Dad. In Jesus' name, amen. Be blessed, you guys. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We're so excited to see the things that God is doing in our community. And if you're looking for a way to get involved in that, then please go to rendicator.org and make a commitment to being a part of showing the people of Decatur the truth of Jesus and how much he loves them.